This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Welcome to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. The best fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by two guys who owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I am your host, Brian Kahn. And not with me today is Elon Dabrowski, who is enjoying a well-deserved vacation, but still sending me fantasy questions on GTalk. There is no rest for the obsessed. And because Elon is not here, I've actually got a bit of a different show than usual planned for you today. But first... Let me mention, as always, that we are proudly presented by DauberHockey.com. And did you know that we are not the only podcast of impeccable quality presented by DauberHockey.com? It's true. Of course, I'm talking about the Dauber Prospects radio show hosted by Paul and Peter. Their most recent episode featured a look at the prospect cupboards of Tampa Bay and Detroit, uh, some AHL and Memorial Cup playoff chatter, and more. You can find that show on iTunes or wherever you like to get your podcasts. That is Dauber Prospects Radio. But back to the show at hand, we've got a doozy of an episode for you today, and uh, this is how it's going to go down. First, you're going to hear me in conversation with our first guest, TSN.ca's Travis Yost, where we're going to touch on each of the conference finalists, as well as whether or not I am being too touchy about the detractors who are unimpressed by Ottawa's run in particular. We also talk about Mike Sullivan's coaching. A spoiler, I call him Mike Johnston in the interview. Uh, We also chat about why the Ducks are still playing themselves, uh, who the most important defenders are in Nashville, the emergence of young defensemen in the NHL as a whole, And we cap off the whole thing with a lightning round featuring some of the impending question marks for power play quarterbacks heading into next season. And one note about that interview, uh, we do talk about the Ducks. And while talking about the Ducks, we talk about Ryan Getzlaff. And it's really hard to mention his name without acknowledging the bigger story around him at the moment. And I'll just take this opportunity to say that we unequivocally reject his choice of word to something that should exist in hockey or the world. And uh, personally, I am entirely unimpressed with the pseudo-apology that was offered. Then I'm going to step right back in with a friendly intermission message. And after that, 
you're going to hear my second conversation with FanRag Sports' NHL managing editor and Hockey Graphs contributor Carolyn Wilkie. You might know her as Classicity on Twitter. And in that chat, we go deep on all things Dallas to try and figure out whether Ben, Sagan, Klingberg, and co. are ready for a bounce back next year. And then we close out that chat with a look to the more illuminating performances that have come out of this year's now-concluded World Championships. So that's the roadmap. I think it's all going to go pretty smoothly. Uh, That's all I've got to say for now. Uh, Here comes the really awkward part where I need to throw to an interview that also begins with my own voice. So uh, let's, uh, let's just go ahead and roll that tape. Joining me now from New York is TSN.ca's Travis Yost. Travis, thank you for taking the time today to join us as a guest on Keeping Carlson. I have to do it. I was one of the last four left, so I'm obliged to be on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a process of elimination. Uh, so let's get right into what's happening in the playoffs right now. And like the biggest storyline, maybe I'm, I'm tinted from, from living in Ottawa, but there's been all these characterizations about the, the remaining four conference finalists and, you know, how they've each, what they've each gone through to get here. And then when we get to the Sens, it's like, well, they're boring and they're lucky and no one's really happy that they're there. And I get that. Like, I, I get that there's enough uh, dislike of Ottawa as a city or, or the team's history or whatever. But I want to dig into those uh, just for a minute with you. And let's actually, let's separate them into two. So, like, I know when CBC was setting up the series uh, on our broadcast, they set it up so strictly as, like, the Sens 1-3-1, this defensive trap that kills hockey, essentially. And they went as far as to show, like, within the first 10 minutes of the series, they showed that infamous clip of the Lightning playing the Flyers when Guy Boucher was coaching in Tampa and the Flyers just circling in their own end. And, you know, they say, this is what Ottawa does now. Is that true? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think the boring thing, it, I, I've, I've wrestled back and forth with this, but I was talking about it about a week or so ago I uh, on Twitter. I, I think that the boring thing is just a catchword to kind of delegitimize some of what they've done. And, that's fine. That's the separate, that's the, have they been lucky? Have they benefited from something argument, which is again, to your point, something entirely different. But I, you know, if you look at your shot pace or anything that would capture tempo, like Ottawa's not at the bottom of the pack. Like to me, the boring teams consistently in the NHL. And I do watch a lot of teams around the league are the devils. And at times the coyotes, that's historically been the case for about three or four years. And now you can then any, in any given year in the last, I don't know, four or five years, you could pick like one or two other teams and add them to the list. Like this year, I thought Vancouver was tremendously boring. Um, a couple of years ago, I thought uh, Montreal was one of the more boring teams. Like it, it all comes down to taste. And like, I get it. Like people want to see more high tempo, high scoring games. And maybe Ottawa, I would agree with this. Ottawa is not as entertaining as they were when Paul McClain was the coach. I, I will absolutely buy on that. But the problem with that team was they literally did not play defense. Like, if there was any <laughs> team that did not play defense in NHL history, it was Paul McLean Center. So I'm like, at some point, even non like the non-fan group have to, the people who are still, you know, attached to the NHL playoffs, even though maybe their team is has been eliminated, you kind of have to subscribe like, hey, look, I, maybe they don't entertain me as much as Nashville does. And I, first off, I would agree with that. Like, I think Nashville's a more entertaining, entertaining team than Ottawa. That's fine. But I don't know that I find them boring. I, I think a lot of this is being 
I, I think they're having trouble, in my opinion, disentangling that from, oh, well, I don't think they're one of the four best teams, so let me find ways to nitpick them. So I, I don't think they're boring, and I, I don't think any of the remaining teams are, to be fair. Right, there's not one super talented, flashy guy. Or, well, sorry, there's Carlson. But when Carlson doesn't have the puck, uh, unless Anderson is handling it behind the net or anywhere in his crease, uh, there's not, you know, you're not guaranteed an exciting play. So maybe that is where uh, those boring characterizations are coming from. Is it really like such a rigid system too? Because I'm seeing a lot of defensemen pinching. I'm seeing a pretty active forecheck as well. Yeah, well, that that's, I wrote about this last week, but th- this is like a common theme in my in my opinion anyway of of where we've seen the NHL really develop. If you watch the game last night between Anaheim and Nashville, the the number of times the defenseman pitch a uh, pinch in in a given sequence was uncountable. Like the, it, it happened basically on every single play, and the reason why I I think we all know this Anaheim and Nashville probably have the best and second best um, defensive pairings in the in the league, and they are afforded the luxury of being able to do that. And further to that point, I think that the reason why Anaheim and Nashville and to some degree Ottawa are left is because their defenses have been, you know, Ottawa is a different animal because they have the best defender in the league, probably the best pairing in the league, um, but they're extremely top-heavy on the blue line. And it's been like, well, can this pairing get us enough in a game so that we don't get killed elsewhere? Um, but, yeah, like to your point, like I, I think – the defensive side of the uh, the 2016 playoffs has been super entertaining because they've been as engaged as really I can ever remember um, in both, on both ends of the ice. The, uh, the you know it's funny you bring it up though. Like this is where I think, and, and I don't even think Senators fans disagree with me or anyone on this. Like I think this is where people can reasonably nitpick Ottawa, and that is they just aren't that good of a team when Eric Carlson's off the ice. And and that's fine. Like you can make the same argument about Sidney Crosby and, you know, Hantus Lindholm and all these superstars in PK Subban. When, when these guys are off the ice, their teams are worse. Okay. Understood. The problem is the drop off on the Ottawa side is so it's, it's so much more prominent that I think people are when watching the Ottawa games, when they see the, I don't know, 22 even strength minutes that Eric Carlson's not out there. You know, Ottawa's kind of getting bombed on. A lot of that has to do with their second, third lines and their second pairing when they're kind of together because CC Finuff haven't done anything um, basically this entire season, and they don't get a ton of help when they're playing with depth forwards either, so it's kind of a give and take there. And I think, like, if you watch just their shifts, you would think Ottawa is a quote-unquote lottery team, and that would be a totally fair assessment. Um, I, I think people have... I think I think people have rightly stated the the struggles that Ottawa has when Eric Carlson is not in the lineup, and I know Ottawa fans get touchy and they don't want to be treated as like, hey, we're a one-dimensional team, but you kind of are, like at, yeah. at least on the defensive side. The I I think what has been understated is how impactful, um, and, and this is only true in some instances. I, I know you got a, a lot of national media attention, so it, it's it's only true in certain circles, but. The the problem that teams have had with the Ottawa Senators is that they don't have an answer for a guy who's going to play half the game. So Ottawa's whole missive right now is we are going to dominate when 65's out there. And then in the 20 to 25 or whatever minutes of even strength hockey that's left, we're just going to try and hold. Like, that's all we're going to try and do. We got a guy who can play half the game, and we can match him up against anyone, and that's included Patrice Bergeron, Sidney Crosby, basically any New York Rangers line. And he's come out ahead every single in every single instance. Um, the, the 
the the second piece of it though is is the one where I think people are right, and I think it's fair to say like they're not a very good team when he's off the ice. They just are not. They they have looked inferior in in at times in the Boston series, in the Ranger series, and in the Pittsburgh series. That's kind of where they got crushed in Game Two. Um, and like that, that's fair. Like that's fine. Like they don't have the makeup of a Stanley Cup team that can run four lines and three pairings. But you know what? Maybe that team isn't needed this year because. The only team that really had that makeup this season were the Washington Capitals, and they got bounced in the second round. Um, and Pittsburgh may have had that makeup at one point, but they they just don't have the depth. Like, there's not a lot of like wildly talented top to bottom 07 Detroit Red Wings team. So maybe what Ottawa has is enough this year. Yeah. So does that make them lucky for how far they've gotten in the playoffs? Like, you know, there's an element of luck for any team advancing to the conference finals. Uh, But given how they are just playing to survive when Carlson is off the ice, have they received an outsized amount of luck to get where they are compared to what you'd expect or the other conference finalists? Uh, When when we say, when we talk about luck, I think, I think in Ottawa's case, and by the way, it's also true in the cases of Nashville and Anaheim, because I I will argue right now that both of those teams had easier roads. Um, in large part due to the fact that the Western Conference isn't very good anymore. Um, you know, look at look at the road Anaheim had to go through a couple of years ago. Compare it to this year. Is that lucky? Uh, maybe. Like the balance of power shifted to the East. Maybe Anaheim's lucky. Um, my larger point being, I think all teams have some degree of luck to get to the Final Four. But yeah, I think I think I, I think Ottawa's gotten. They've avoided the tough bounces when Carlson's been off the ice. That has certainly helped. Um, even though they're getting shot killed when he's at, when he's off the ice, that that's number one. And number two, like people complain, but the strength of schedule thing is kind of real. Like I, 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 they drew Boston who was beaten up injury wise. And I, when I wrote that series up, I said, this series is as razor close as a coin flip as any series, because I think Boston had the best line, but I think Ottawa had the makeup of a team that could beat them because they had a guy who could play half the game. Um, I think I, I can't remember. I knew the, I, I wrote that the series would definitely go seven games, and I was wrong about that. Ottawa was the better team, but I thought that series was as close as any. When Ottawa drew New York in the second round, now you're in your final eight, I thought Ottawa was definitively the better team in that matchup. Like, without question, I was taking Ottawa, which is odd because Ottawa did not have the allure of a team that, like, oh, yeah, this is a final four team. But you could argue, and I, I, I don't know that this is much of an argument, I think the Rangers were the weakest team left in the final eight, so Ottawa caught a bit of a break there. Um, and now they're playing a Pittsburgh team who, look, give them full credit. Like they, they beat the best team in the NHL regular season or postseason. Like no one wanted to play. No one in a sound mind would have wanted to play the Washington Capitals. And uh, and I, and then, you know what? To further prove my point, I think people are realizing why I was saying that now. Now that the series is two two with Pittsburgh, like outside of Game Two where Ottawa got boat raced, they've been competitive in that series. And I don't know that people would. Uh, with a right mind, uh, can can honestly say, yeah, we would have hung with the Capitals too. They they look like the best team. So yeah, like the scheduling has kind of played out a bit more favorably for them than than some other teams, especially if you're oh, look at Columbus for example. Like they had to go Pittsburgh and then uh, presumably Washington after that. Like that is tougher. Is that luck? I don't know. I mean that's that's kind of the playoff format. But like you can say as an Ottawa fan, like yeah, we've caught in breaks here, here, and here, and still in good faith, in my opinion, defend your team and where they're at. Like, it's not like I have to live on this island 100% of the time. Like, everyone can concede that we, that the, you know, that's, that at certain times Ottawa played teams that were a bit injury beaten up, 
Um, they didn't play the toughest schedule this year. They, in other years where they made the playoffs, they certainly had a tougher road. And not that they got necessarily that far, but they had a tougher road mapped out. And uh, like, I think, I think, I think you can basically be on both islands. Is my point. Like, I think you could say this team's playing good hockey and that they've caught the right breaks at the right times. Just, just like Anaheim and Nashville have, and even Pittsburgh to some degree, in my opinion. Yeah, well, Pittsburgh, you look at the road they've taken, it's been difficult, and they've done it with like a skeleton crew on the back end and now missing some guys up front too. How much credit goes to Mike Johnson for what he's been able to get out of his lineup and the adjustments he's been able to make? Like we know when he came behind the bench last season when the Pens were in dire straits and couldn't get the puck out of their own end, we know what he was able to turn that into. Uh, is he doing it all over again? Is he one of the better tacticians in the league just based on his own coaching performance in these playoffs? I, I certainly think so. I mean, I think one of the most damning things to happen to your team if you're a head coach is when you have a run of cluster injuries on your blue line. And Pittsburgh didn't have like this, you know, this run of like five guys out at the same time, but they did, they do have a few that are banged up or out, including far and away their best defenseman in Crystal Tank. And how he's been able to piecemeal that together has been super impressive. I mean, I know Guy Boucher was killing me after game two when that series was 1-1. And he, the line was, I thought we played a, a strong five of six periods. He's basically saying the third period in Pittsburgh um, was the reason why that series was going back 1-1 and not, not 2-0 Ottawa. And I, I thought that was like the most perplexing statement he's had all year. And it was pure coach babble. And I can't believe anyone actually bought that. When the, if, if you watch the second period, even parts of the first period, but the second period and the third period of game two, it was one of the most dominating efforts I have seen this season, regular season or postseason. Like, Ottawa did not touch the puck. And you knew it was bad when Eric Carlson, anytime he got the puck, he was just flipping it off the boards. Like, he does not do that. So if your best defender is just flipping it off the boards to clear the third, defensive third, you know guys like Clayson and CeCe and, and Weidman and, and Mathot and every, basically, you know, run down the blue line are going to struggle. And in those in that game, for example, like, they just kept turning it over. I, I can't, I've lost track of how many times Cody CeCe lost the puck in the defensive zone um, to another Pittsburgh forward. And, you know, people said, can they replicate that effort? Probably not. They, uh, they played game three. Ottawa wins game three. But, again, like, they came back game four, and I, I don't know. I it's, a lot of, obviously is going to be contingent on what happens in game five, but I think Ottawa might regret um, the uh, the first period play against Pittsburgh a lot more than 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 I think it's being led on right now. Um, Ottawa was in a really good chance to take that series up three one. You're up three one. You got about an eighty eight percent chance of winning that series, and I, I know that's easier said than done. But that was the first time where. I, like, I didn't think Pittsburgh was totally outclassing them. I just didn't think they were playing 100%. Like, Craig Anderson was out of position on the first goal. I thought structurally they were a bit broken uh, on certain runs of play. Like, it wasn't just a total, like, yeah, the Pittsburgh four checks lighting us up. It was Ottawa kind of gave them a bit of runway, and Pittsburgh took advantage of it. And now, again, you know, despite what Ottawa's done in the first four games, which has been pretty incredible, save game two, um, they are the underdog again in this series because it's a best of three and Pittsburgh's got two, two home games. So um, I, I, I certainly think Pittsburgh and, and, and the entire coaching staff deserve credit for that. And let's move over to the Western Conference. And you mentioned Paul McLean as the Sens coach who, who did not have his team play defense. And that was apparent in every metric that you looked at them by. Uh, you have Paul McLean and Randy Carlisle 
behind the same bench of a conference finalist. Both coaches have taken what I think is is absolutely their fair share of being maligned over the last few years. So how has this happened? Because, I mean, you've got the Anaheim back end, which is pretty solid. But aside from that, is there enough for them to work with? Are they doing anything to deserve this? What's happening? So a couple thoughts. One, I know this might earn me some scoring with Senators fans, but I didn't hate Paul McClain. Like, I thought he was an okay coach, and I thought he was, at least in part, kind of sandbagged by a crappy crappy job done by the front office. Like, I, I don't think he was given the right pieces to play chess. Um, that said, like, I have the same complaints other people did about, like, the team just did not play defense. It looked like the, the like, very average Mike D'Antoni teams that, that were not the, like, mid-2000 Phoenix Suns, and everyone was like, oh, yeah, like you can score one twenty, but you're giving up one thirty. Like that's a problem. <laughs> um, yeah, but Randy Carlisle, like no one, no, you know, Randy Carlisle has been killed in every corner of the hockey internet. And look, this is where I mentioned like luck and why I can you can apply it to other teams. They they fired Bruce Boudreau in a in a Western Conference that Bruce Boudreau managed one division I think every single year um, with Anaheim that he was there. That that league, the Western Conference that Boudreau was in was absolutely loaded. San Jose was a better team. Chicago was a demonstrably better team. L.A. was a demonstrably better team. And you had all of these Western Conference powerhouses fall off at the same time. And Anaheim, who I have argued, this Ducks team, I don't think is as good as the Ducks team from a couple of years ago. But the step-off has not been nearly as disparate as it has been with you know the Blackhawks and Sharks or the Blues or whoever, whatever team, the Kings, whatever team you want to talk about. Um, like... Anaheim maybe took a step back where these other two teams took like five steps back. And the reality of the Western Conference is no real team has emerged as a challenger other than Nashville and Edmonton. That's pretty much it. And Edmonton, quite frankly, did not have the horses to really pose a serious Stanley Cup threat this year. The blue line was, wasn't deep enough. They, they really didn't have anything on the third and fourth lines. But you can get by with a very top-heavy team in the regular season. You can even win around. I think we saw that. And, you know, there are times that the Oilers look great. Uh, but I, I just did not think that they had the, the full requisite lineup you need to really push into a Stanley Cup, at least this year. So what is Anaheim left with? They ran through the Alberta teams, uh, an okay Calgary team and a good Edmonton team. Um, you could argue that this is the first matchup where Anaheim is pound for pound like matched. And look, they're down in the series. And quite frankly, I think Nashville is a better team of the two. Um, I'm not trying to take anything away from Randy Carlisle. Like if anything, I think people who questioned him, including myself, were wrong about the type of negative impact Randy Carlisle had on his team. But the only point I would, I would provide is I, I think the Boudreaux era teams were better. I, I certainly just think that the, this Carlisle team this year has kind of benefited from external variables and staying healthy. Oh, and by the way, the development of all these freaking young defenders like Shea Theodore and Brendan Montour and, you know, Hampus Lindholm is like now an elite first pairing defender. Like, these things have kind of come together for him and, and he, he deserves credit for getting him there. Like at some point you have to win games too. Like this is, this is the one area where I deviate frequently from the stats community, which is like, at some point you just have to win. Like, I don't want to hear about teams like the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Buffalo Sabres when they were going through certain stretches and they're like, Oh yeah, they're turning the corner. Like everything's great. We're just going to give them hundred percent positive PR. And it's like, you know, Maybe Toronto, just as, and I'm not nitpicking on Toronto, but maybe Toronto would still be in the playoffs if they just won game 82. Like people complained about, you know, their fan base is as fervent as any of complaining about where Ottawa is right now. 
the Maple Leafs, in, in all seriousness, would have had just as good of a shot to have been there if they would have just won game 82 against the Blue, the Blue Jackets. But they lost. They gave Ottawa the second spot. And they drew in the first-round matchup against Washington. So their entire season basically came down to one game. Is that luck? Is that random? I don't know. I, it, it depends on how you quantify it. But I think people need to realize that this sort of randomness is omnipresent in uh, everything that everyone does. and It's there no matter where you look. Yeah, absolutely. And until the league, you know, finally wises up and switches to the one versus 16 and the two versus 15, these draws are going to play at least part. at least the one versus eight, like the, the, the new <laughs> format. I have I have on record of complaining about this format every single year. And the reason why is because if you ever have a divisional strength imbalance, you will always have at least one overly strong matchup and one overly weak matchup like Detroit played Tampa Bay one year, and they were both like mid-90 point teams. Then another year, you had the worst playoff matchup I've ever watched, which was Calgary-Vancouver. Just two horrendous hockey teams. And by virtue of that, you're guaranteeing one team gets to the final eight. They don't break the divisional format. They're going to keep having those issues. Let's uh, let's go back to Anaheim for a minute and talk about that young blue line. Uh, And you recently... Uh, had that article up on tsn.ca about how the remaining conference finalists on average have some of the youngest defensive cores as well in in recent memory. Uh, So in Anaheim specifically, I mean, you have Shea Theodore and Hampus Lindholm. uh, You've also got Vatanen and uh, you mentioned Montour, Fowler. You've got all these names. Which one of those guys emerges as the heaviest load bearer? Uh, I think it's Absolutely, Hampus Lindholm. I think he's far and away the best defender on that blue line. Um, the, the interesting question, I think, if you're Anaheim, is who's who's our number two? Because, you know, I, I think some of the defensive-oriented types will say it's Josh Manson, and I think some of the people who prefer the more balanced two-way puck-moving types are Sammy Vatanen. But I, I think where Anaheim's going to run into issue, and it's been well-written about, they the expansion draft, which is really as... I, I'm looking for the right word. There's like no penalty to being exposed to the expansion draft because of the way the league set it up. Um, just almost every single team is shielding their, you know, only impactful players. So Vegas is kind of screwed with what's going to be available. But basically there's two teams that could be impacted by it. And one of them is Anaheim because they just cannot protect enough good defensemen because of how many they have. And I think that's why you're starting to see the vultures circle the Anaheim carcass, even though it's not a carcass, like they're in the final four. But I, you know, I, I read something a couple of days ago that Mike Babcock and Lou Lamorello were, uh, were in national Anaheim watching. And I'm like, Hmm, if any team needs a defender more than the Maple Leafs, I don't know who that team is. Right. Um, and it, it, like you can make the case that the Leafs add Sammy Vatanen, like they are becoming, I don't know that they're a powerhouse today, but they are on their way. Like, that is the type of guy every team in the league should be targeting, and the Leafs have the young forwards to get him. Um, I, I think that would make an awful lot of sense, but you know, I, I do think that you're going to hear Cam Fowler's name brought up, too. I mean, they, there was trade talk about him last year, him and potentially Buffalo, and maybe that's something they still look at. Like, maybe Is it possible the Ducks trade two defenders and let kind of Montour and Theodore slide up, and they, they preserve that first pairing of Lindholm-Manson? Like, maybe that's something that makes sense to them. It'd certainly be a way to address some of their forward depth issues. And, and again, like if you don't think they have forward depth issues, it, it remind me again, Jared Bull was on what line? The third one, like that, that is, that's a problem in and of itself. So, and how many more years do they get out of Perry and Getzlaff? 
Yeah, like I, Ryan Getzloff looks like he could play for a hundred, but Corey Perry does not look as good as he once was. Um, this is kind of the the journey you see these elite shooters who have like these other skills, but really they're just their one skill is putting the puck in the back of the net. Like once these guys start to degrade, you kind of notice it. And you know, Corey, uh, Corey Perry had that one unbelievable goal. I think it was in Game Three or Game Four. Um, but for the most part, like he's kind of been neutralized, whereas Getzoff's been incredible. Um, I, I, I certainly think that you raise up a good point though, because either way, I mean, these guys are, you know, out of the prime of their careers, maybe Getzoff's in the very twilight of the prime, but Perry's definitely out of it. And, and quite frankly, it's basically Ricky Raquel and Jakob Silverberg, who's been sensational for them. And then after that, again, like the age thing still starts, starts to play Cagliano, well, a ton of miles. Ryan Kessler, ton of miles. Like you can kind of go down the list there. there. There's a lot of forwards that are going to be need to be replaced in the next few years. Uh, I certainly think that's an opportunity for them to flip some assets and get those guys. So they have this. I mean, they're one of the few teams that can afford the luxury of trading away not just one but two top four caliber defensemen uh, because these younger guys are coming up and you said it's not necessarily unique. They might be the richest in that sense, but it's not unique around the, the conference finalists that their blue lines are young. What's your theory on why this is happening? Why, why are we having a shift to younger defensemen? Are they suddenly more mature or better developed? What's playing into them taking on a larger role in these playoffs? But it's. I think it's a couple of things. One, I, I think that teams are starting to realize that if you just do not have your superstar Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid type, there's another way you can build your team, and that's through the back end. Um, like, obviously, I put Nashville and Anaheim in one bucket and Ottawa in another bucket because I don't think Ottawa's done a great job yet of building their blue line. Like, they've kind of just gotten by from now with having the best defender in the world by a mile. Um, whereas Nashville and Anaheim really have six, seven guys who can play incredibly. but like, you know, with, with the Predators and Ducks, like, it's so much about draft and develop, but it's also, I, I think they have recognized that, yeah, look, we don't have that, that generational superstar center, and that's okay. Like, we're just going to own the puck for the majority of five-on-five, five, and we're going to let our defend, defenders activate on every single play, and we're gonna, they're interchangeable parts. It's like, it's like a brand-new, like, Boeing aircraft right out of, the, right out of uh, the manufacturing line where, like, there's parts that you can just plug and play and go, and it's it doesn't really matter where you put them. The other, the other piece of this is like, everyone's like, well, you know, a team like Anaheim and Nashville, like they've gotten lucky through the draft. And, and maybe that's true. Like maybe they've hit the right players on top of like having the right guys in the first round, but th- there have been smaller, quiet, you know, blue line ads from both of these teams in recent years that have helped, that have helped move them along. Like Nashville this year had a deep blue line. And then they added Matt Irwin, who's played top four minutes for them and has been great and Yannick Weber, who is fine in a third-pairing role. Like, th- those are the type of moves that I think, they, I think all in, those two moves cost them, like, under $2 million and, and like, you know, a per- a, the tiniest percentage of the salary cap. But, like, those are the types of moves where you can instantly improve your team um, and without, like, having this, you know, without having to make a move for a top-10 pick or without having to trade unbelievable assets to get them. Like, you can the – defend, the defenseman market is still – misunderstood to some degree like we just do not have the singularly great defining defensive metric like we do with points with forwards so I think that's part of the reason why teams have struggled historically to identify who's good and who's not but that's where I think new age statistics come in and are are better than the counting statistics like the counting statistics super important for forwards 
Um, less so for the defenders. I think the newer statistics capture defensemen performance well, and I think that's what you're starting to say. And one of your poster boys for this this influx of young defensemen was Ryan Ellis over in Nashville. Where does he rank right now amongst that blue line? Like I've seen arguments that he's better than Roman Yosi at this point. He's second to only PK Subban. Where do you come in on that? Uh, I, I think you could make the argument that it's two. Um, I the the thing that one thing that has absolutely killed me this playoffs is this notion that that PK Subban's pairing is not the first pairing and that he's not the best defender on the team. Both are emphatically true. I'm not sure that either are very close. He's playing a ton of minutes. He's getting the tough minutes. Their pairing is his pairing with Ekholm is demonstrably better than the uh, Yossi pairing, uh, at least at least through the playoffs. Like that's a clear divide. But to your point, like I think Ellis, I think the good argument is Ellis and Ekholm at two and three. Like I would say, I would say Yossi is like a three four in that in that depth chart, and then the battle between two three, I, it's kind of interchangeable. But that's that's where I would struggle with um Ekholm versus Ellis because I think Ellis um I think Ellis has played a bit better I think Ekholm's been on the better pairing but I think Ekholm's also benefited from who he's played with so it's kind of tougher there um I I both guys bring different skills and attributes to the game I know Ellis is getting the pop because of the scoring rates um but like again this is this is my point like you're talking about these three guys plus Roman Yossi plus you know Weber and Irwin and you go down the list, like they don't have a bad defender on the team. They don't. And, and it's just so hard to beat a team like that because, you know, look at, look at Ottawa. I, I'll bring it back to Ottawa for a second, but it's like, oh, well, we know where we get in trouble. It's when the CC Phaneuf pairings out there. Well, why do you say that? Well, we know they're not that great. Well, wouldn't it be easier if you had three pairings, by the way, that just were as good as one another? Like, people, it's not as unrealistic as people think. Like, they brought in an entire third pairing out of free agency for almost no money spent. And uh, and they traded the most alert defender in the entire league for a significantly better defender and less of a cap liability. Like it, sometimes it's just being smart, making the right moves, and I, that's why I think David Poyle is like a runaway GM uh, GM of the year. Like he he has built this team in an incredible way, and uh, like yeah, yeah, you can nitpick at the roster, but man, he has done a, a sensational job this year. All right, with just a few minutes left, let's move on to just a couple final theoretical questions. I'm curious to know, I mean, you've talked about how you like to evaluate players, but where are you presently at? I mean, we have these catch-all stats with war. We've got another war metric being developed by Manny Elk. Uh, How do you feel about those metrics uh, compared to relative stats, which we've been using more often for the last several years? So I think the criticisms around relative, the one criticism around relative stat that's legitimate is when you are a great player on a bad team, your numbers always look better. It's kind of like the Mark Giordano effect. So a couple of years ago, Mark Giordano was on the Flames. The Flames were a catastrophe when he was off the ice, and they were really good when he was out there because they were a one-line, one-parent team. So Giordano's relative team relative numbers always looked way better than even a guy like Victor Hedman or Carlson, guys who are probably comparable um, for that exact reason. So I think that's a legitimate criticism of the Rel stats, but the problem with the catch-all singular statistics is that, um, at least in part, there have been so many refinements and refinements of the refinements that, it, it, look, it's still in development. Like, it's still in R&D stage, and I am all fully on board with coming up with new ways to measure talent, measure performance, measure productivity. And I, I really enjoy the uh, – I haven't read the latest series by Manny, but, like, the, the effort and intensity that's been given to creating this singular metric – should not go unnoticed. Like it takes a ton of work and a ton of time to build this stuff out. 
And I think what, what you will hear from the people who have built these stats is like, yeah, like this is the best I can do today. And then six months down the road, they'll say, you know what? I thought of a better way to do this. And that's wholly appropriate and fine. I just think we're still in the earlier stages of what that stat actually looks like and what we can actually, uh, what we can actually measure. I use them um, as kind of maybe corroborating evidence at times. Like I'll glance over at the war, the singular war stats, but for now I, I kind of like looking at each of the different um, important statistics, whether they are individual on ice team relative, and I kind of will group them together. Um, I, I will not make one singular metric. I'll make seven or eight or nine, and I'll kind of look at them as, as, a, as a lot for an individual player to kind of get a feel for how he's deployed, how he performed, and what his you know, projections look like. Right, okay. And, uh, and we have the draft coming up also, and, and you have been a proponent in the past of abolishing the NHL draft. Just forget it, and let's just sign uh, draft-eligible players, have a free-for-all. Are you still advocating for this idea? Well, yeah, absolutely, because the draft is terrible. Like, the only thing that people like about the draft that they don't realize is the draft lottery, which, by the way, is stupid in and of itself. But, like, I just think there's so many legitimate complaints about the draft, including but not limited to the fact that you're forcing a person to go work for a team for eight years. You are purposely constricting the – like, no one in, in, their, in, in good faith can say that the league is appropriately – um, appropriating dollars to ta- to players based on talent. No, you know what they do? They totally rob players from age 18 to 23, 24, and then over-reward their senior players association players. Now, don't get me wrong. This is completely collectively bargained. But no one, like, it's, it's incredible that everyone understands that, like, you have to have unbelievable performance on your guys on ELCs or their second deals. Otherwise, it's tough to win because... <laughs> They are implicitly saying, oh, we know the better players in our league. And by the way, the NHL is becoming a very young league. They don't get paid all that much. So they're, they're beneficial against the cap. So now we're, now we're going to try and make the most of those guys and then basically reallocate that money because it's a pot, right? And you've got to distribute a certain percentage under the CBA. We're going to give these veteran guys who are out of their prime way more money than they deserve through free agency. I like I could go on a 10-day rant about all the inefficiencies that the draft creates, but quite frankly, I am a big proponent of a bidding system. Put it, put a bid cap in place. Let teams place how much, how how big of a bet they want to place on each one of these individual players. Certain teams are going to be cap constrained when they have really good players; they're not going to be able to bid much. Other teams, like you know, teams with not a lot of cap and not a lot of roster available, are going to have a ton to bid on, and they're going to take. They're either going to swing for the fences based on what their scouts say, or they're not. But I, I don't like I'm fine with teams making a bet on a wrong 21 year old and that 21 year old benefiting because generally at a macro level, those those younger players are going to be the ones that perform. It's, it's the it's the reverse of betting on a Dave Boland or whoever, David Clarkson and giving these guys one hundred billion dollars. Despite all these warning signs, like, yeah, these make no sense. The only reason why you're giving them money is they're an unrestricted free agent. You would never give this money if this kid if, if Boland or Clarkson would or were our face. But that's. The NHL landscape as a whole, the contracts especially, are just kind of a mess like that. All right, and finally, let's wrap up with a quick lightning round. I'm just going to throw some questions at you, and you can give me as quick an answer as you're capable of. Um, Of some of our top playoff performers, uh, which of these guys is most likely to carry their postseason play through the next regular season between Philip Forsberg, Ryan Johansson, and Jake Gensel? Oh, Philip Forsberg. <laughs> there's, there's no there's no side indicating that that guy's going to slow down anytime soon. Absolutely, Philip Forsberg. You think the other two still have a shot at it, or is one of them grossly overperforming? 
Uh, Ryan Johansson will be fine. Um, that injury sounds scary, though. And Jake Gensel looks like a player. I don't know if he's as good as he's shown this year, but um, like if, if I'm betting on guys in order, it's Forsberg, Johansson, and then Gensel. All right, and I'm going to pick a theme for the next set of questions. I want to know who should be running the power play uh, for the following teams. Let's take a look at St. Louis with Shattenkirk out, Pareko, Petrangelo. The most likely candidates, who would you take? Uh, Pareko. All right, how about in Columbus with Wierenski and Seth Jones? Wierenski, not even close. And Minnesota, does Ryan Suter still get the helm, or is it time for uh, Spurgeon or Dumba, if he's still with the team, to take over? That's a tough one. I think they're going to have to do it by committee next year unless they bring in a new player or it depends on what their lineup looks like, but I think it's still going to be by committee in Minnesota. Toronto, uh, Jake Gardner got more power play time than I'd have expected going into this season. I was under the expectation that Morgan Riley was going to get the most time. Is that going to hold for next season uh, between Gardner and Riley? Who who should be anchoring back there? Um, so on the, on the power play, I, I would say, again, a mix of those two. I, I do think I, I do find it interesting though how many people underrate Jake Gardner. Like Jake Dar- Gardner is freaking good. Maybe they're their best. Actually, definitively is their best defender. Um, where right, whereas Riley struggles at five on five sometimes. So I, but on the power play though, different animal. Like I, Riley's creativity um, and his skill and his speed probably give him a slight uptick. So I, I'm okay with him getting a, a chunk of minutes there. But um, yeah, you probably want to do that by committee as well. And then let's circle back for the very last one uh, over in Anaheim with that glut of defensemen. Assume they're all there next year. Like, we've seen Theodore capable of handling the power play. We saw Fowler's huge start last season on the power play. Uh, Lindholm should be capable, though he didn't get a chance to show it much. Vatnin, too. Uh, even though they've been playing, like, a 3-forward, 2-D power play for, I think, longer than they should have. Uh, which one of those guys deserves to be the QB in, in Anaheim? Uh, Lindholm, and then Vatanen in that order, assuming Vatanen is still there. Um, if Vatanen is not there, then it's going to be a mix after Lindholm, but Lindholm's going to be one QB. All right, well, you, you did it. We're through the lightning round. Uh, thank you so much for, for the bonus time here and, uh, and for coming on the show and sharing all those, uh, all those insights and really good stuff. All right, man. Take care. It was fun. So there it is, my chat with Travis. Of course, you can find his work up at tsn.ca, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Travis Yost. And I will take this little intermission break to also thank all of our patrons and everyone who supports the show by pledging to us via Patreon. Normally we have a whole swath of perks reserved for those listeners who kick in $5 a month to the show. They become a part of the Keeping Carlson community. Uh, But for the summer... All it's going to take is a dollar a month of your support. That's 50 cents per episode uh, to get exclusive access to our super, literally the best place to talk hockey on the internet, Facebook group, as well as our monthly bonus patron cast where all our supporters and patrons, they're more or less in charge of directing the show and deciding what Elon and I talk about. You can find out all the info over at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. We hope you'll join us and take advantage of this little sneak peek at what being a patron is like full-time through the hockey season. But with that said, uh, here comes our second interview. Take it away, Brian. Here with me now on the line from Boulder, Colorado, is Carolyn Wilkie, the managing editor over at FanRag Sports, the managing hockey editor over at FanRag Sports, and also a contributor at Hockey Graphs, and also a fantastic tweeter at Classlicity on Twitter, which I actually didn't check the pronunciation of with you before we started. Did I get that right? Have I been saying Yeah, you nailed it. Classicity. 
Okay, so the, the mental dialogue whenever I see your name will remain the same. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And you do have, like, you're well-versed in the Dallas Stars as well. So that, that's actually where I want to start. Last year seemed like such a... I don't know if disaster is a fair word, but it just really did not meet expectations. The season that the Stars had as a team and that a lot of the individual players had. Uh, We have the coaching change now, and I'm wondering how much of the problem last year for the Stars' general mess can be attributed (laughs) to Lindy Ruff. Um, I think there was, I think it's kind of 50, 50. So, I, I mean, disaster is pretty, is, is pretty on the nose actually for, for what last year ended up being. Frankly, it, they should have at some point chosen to tank and then it worked out in their favor that they didn't anyway. <laughs> so, you know, that's fine. Um, but I think the blame should really be shared 50, 50 between Jim Nill and Lindy Ruff. So to start the season, I know most people who aren't Stars fans probably weren't following very closely, but the the Stars had about 300 man games lost last year. Matthias Janmark was out the entire season. He didn't play a single game. And uh, Alish Hemsky only ended up playing close, I think, something around 10 games last year. And so uh, that's two top sixers right there who played a total of 10 games that year. Plus, um, Patrick Sharp had his recurring concussion issues, which also were at the beginning of the year. And then Jason Spezza had several injuries at the beginning of the year. So for the large part of like October, November, and part of December as well, um, the Dallas Stars top six consisted of Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan and whoever we could fill in around them. Four other guys. Um, And four other guys. And so that included Antoine Roussel, who had prior to that been a career third liner. And then also included Laurie Korpakoski, who is not my favorite. And and so you you get a lot of guys like that who are bottom six players, career bottom six players, filling out around Jamie and Tyler simply because they have to. Like there's no one else to do it. So I don't really blame Ruff or Nil really, for the issues that our offense had at the beginning of the season. Um, The problems started occurring when the team started getting healthier, but Nil and Ruff, or Ruff really, wasn't able to translate that into some sort of system that actually took advantage of our strengths. And part of the reason he wasn't able to do that was because of the decision Jim Nil made. And this is a really, really big point that a lot of people are missing. So everybody talks about how Nil let Alex Goligoski and Jason Demers walk. And they were both very effective defenders for the Dallas Stars in 15-16. And I'm a big fan of both of them. Like, I wish them lots and lots of success. So everybody points to that as, oh, my God, I can't believe he let those guys walk. At the time, honestly, and I still actually kind of still believe this, it was the right decision to make. Because, again, most people don't follow the prospect systems of teams they're not fans of. The Dallas Stars had both Julius Honka, Asa Lindell in the AHL pretty much all of 15-16. And they were both clearly NHL ready. Not to mention in 15-16, we had eight defensemen. And three of them, Jordy Ben, uh, Jamie Alexiak, and Patrick Nemeth, kind of rotated in that bottom pairing. And none of them really got a whole lot of games. It was clearly hampering their development, especially for Alexiak and Nemeth, who were younger. Nemeth's not that young anymore, but 
Alexiak is still actually like, I think 23. So they got, I think total, both Alexiak and Nemeth maybe played 40 games in 15, 16. So heading into that off season, Nil decided, okay, we have got to take a chance on our youth. What ended up happening though is Julius Honka, who is clearly the best of the group. He actually is playing on the top pairing for Finland. Not that Finland's very good today, but I mean, he's national team 1D. Right. So Julius Honka is the, clearly the best of the lot. Had a fantastic training camp. For some reason, they decided to keep him in the AHL. And that reason is likely because he was still waiver exempt. So he could go up and down, up and down if necessary. Unlike Nemeth, Alexiak, Ben, and Lindell was labor waiver exempt as well. But Lindell came up, didn't play very well on the third pair, got sent back down, and then came up and got placed alongside Klingberg, and then was just kept there. And Lindell, at the moment, is not a first pairing defenseman. And I don't think he ever really will be. He has a tendency, and I think this is where Ruff went wrong. Ruff kept him in a situation he couldn't succeed in. And he, with the amount of healthy scratches going on, basically coached the offense out of Lindell. So instead of making the best play, Lindell often made the safe play. And sometimes the safe play is what you want, but he would almost always chip the puck out of the zone instead of carry it or defer to Klingberg instead of trying to go through traffic. And then I don't, and this is kind of why I don't think he's a really good top pairing defenseman is because he's not actually a great puck handler. He has a fantastic shot. Once he's in the offensive zone, he's fine, but getting him out of the defensive zone and through the neutral zone is a kind of an issue. So this is kind of where I come to, right? So it's 50-50. You've got too many defensemen who aren't getting any minutes. So then Ruff feels compelled to rotate everybody because last year when they scratched these guys for half a season wasn't good either. So Ruff is rotating his bottom pair. He's keeping an AHLer in the AHL for no good reason. And that reason really is that Jim Nill doesn't want to put Nemeth or Alexiak on waivers because he's afraid they're going to get picked up by other teams. Spoiler, would not happen. And then you've got Lindell in a situation he can't succeed. So you've got all of these problems coming from two different sources and just compounding each other. Jim Nill certainly deserves his share of the blame. I asked specifically, like I framed it as if it, how much of the problem last year is rough because I'm trying to figure out, you know, Jim Nill is still in place. Lindy Ruff is out. Ken Hitchcock is in. So with that and only that change happening uh, in the management area of the team, how much change or bounce back can we expect for like, you know, we're expecting point per game seasons, at least from Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan, Uh, Jason Spezza getting those shot rates back up. Also, I'm interested in that happening. John Klingberg picking up his power play production once more. How much of that is possible now that Hitchcock is in, or does there need to be a bigger, more wholesale change for these guys to really get flying again? Um, I think I think most of what you'll end up seeing is actually that the stars are probably going to be healthy next year. And the big difference is they got off to such a bad start that they couldn't ever really come back from it. And so getting healthy is going to be the biggest change you'll see. Plus, we've got a lot of roster retooling. So Sharp is a UFA. uh, Hemsky is a UFA. So, I mean, that's two of our top six right there that we're going to have to either re-sign or replace. And I would expect them to both be replaced. Um, Plus, we've got guys coming up from the AHL that I think will really actually stick in the NHL next year, like Jamel Smith. 
he was a fantastic addition to the bottom six for the couple games he ended up playing in the NHL. He really took big strides last year. He's so fast. He's sound defensively, great on the penalty kill, which was a huge issue for the Stars last year. So I think you'll really see a lot of change just from our personnel perspective. Um, and I am I am really curious to see how Hitchcock fits in with this team because he's saying the right things. He's saying he wants to keep the Stars' speed. He's saying that he understands they're a transition team. He's saying you know that he wants them to play five-man defense, which is a really good thing. Um, So I'm all on board for the things he's saying. What I am really curious about is whether or not he actually puts it into practice. Now, what was interesting to me is that I actually, um, I don't know if you saw recently, but uh, Ryan Stimson put out those team style radars on hockey graphs. Yeah. And basically what he did is he, from his tracking project, kind of broke down the things that teams are good at producing as far as passing metrics and passes that lead to shots. And then also the things that teams are good at defending in the same kind of, you know, what shots they break up, what passes they break up, et cetera, et cetera. And when you looked at that, and this was mostly team, you know, Dallas 15-16, when we were actually okay defensively, not fantastic. We're certainly not top half of the league, but we were middle pack. And then the St. Louis Blues from the same time frame, uh, who were quite good, their defensive style was almost exactly the same. And so I'm a little more optimistic now that I've seen that. Um, what I worry about is that we will end up playing a defense that is actually that hampers offense, because that's kind of what Ruff tried to do this year was, okay, we don't really have a whole lot of offense because they're all on IR. So we're going to just collapse back in the defensive zone and try and play a counterattacking style. And it just did not work. Okay, so so you think that Hitchcock can come in? Like, he, he's saying that he's committed to, to making the most out of this team. And you think he has enough pieces on the team to be able to, to make it happen. And in that sort of setup, you see this team being able... To, to put up the same, like their shot rates were as a team were down last year. I, like their shot attempts per game were down. I think uh, I don't have the number in front of me, but I, I seem to remember it being from the going from the high fifties to the low fifties. Uh, yeah. You think they can get that back, even if Ken Hitchcock comes in and like sets up a system, even if it's a defense first system, uh, that'll be enough of a foundation for them to play off of. See, that's my thing. I don't think if it's a defense first system, they will be able to. But if it's an offense first system with a focus on team defense, it's a little bit different, right? So the the idea is the stars are actually better suited to playing a game more like what the penguins do, which is use your speed to out hustle opponents to the puck and win those puck battles and then turn it around and transition. Um, and then to do that, they, they will need major changes on the blue line. Lindell can't be on the top pair next year if they want that to work because he's just bad at transitions. Um, and so I think there's going to have to be big changes to the roster, especially on the blue line. First and foremost, we can't go into the year with, eight defensemen. Um, and Neil knows that one underrated ad Neil make made last year was, was Dan Hamhuis and he's back next year. So that's good. And he and Honka actually played really, really well together and really had that kind of transition style. So I expect that those two will probably be a pair next year. And so the big question is like, what are we going to do with Lynn with Lindell? Is he going to be on the bottom pair? What are we going to do with Steven Johns who 
showed some promise, but also regressed a lot. And then what are we going to do about finding Klingberg a partner? Um, because Lindell doesn't play the same way Klingberg plays, and it really hampered his style. Like you can see Klingberg is doing fantastically at Worlds because he's playing it next to Alexander Edler, who understands what he's doing and like gives him the room he needs to, you know, the support he needs to be John Klingberg. Um, whereas Lindell was constantly relying on Klingberg for doing the, the little stuff like outlet passes, like transitioning out of the D zone. So Klingberg was shouldering more than his usual burden when he had when with Goligoski, because Goligoski was really good at exiting the zone. So what I'm hearing is that like as Lindell being on the top power player, having that sort of role, it's not the role he's cut out for. Like that's not something on a well-coached team that we should see at the outset of the 27-18 season. It should just be Klingberg back there, right? Right. So I think I think the big difference, right? So Lindell was a rookie last year. Let's also make that clear. Yeah. Like that was his first full year of NHL action. And he got thrown into the fire. And so, I mean, he survived, but it wasn't a good place for him to be. And so to make sure that he actually is successful and is generating the best offense and the best defense he can for the team, I think it would be better to have him in a more of a Jordy Ben role where he's playing on that third pairing. He's defensively sound because he actually does have really good defensive metric. He's great at breaking up zone entries um, and preventing those. He's really good at winning puck battles. You know, he's determined. So on a third pair, those qualities are really, really great. And then if you give him fewer minutes, the ability to, you know, make the most of what he's good at, and then have, he does have offensive upside. He has a great shot. Um, It's just a matter of getting him into the offensive zone. That's really difficult. And you can't have somebody on the top pair playing with Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan who can't get out of the defensive zone. Right on. Uh, And we're somehow 17 minutes into a Dallas Stars conversation. I think this might be a record without mentioning their goaltending. And, like, it sucks. I hate talking about their goaltending. (laughs) It's been, like, the same situation for years now and it's like will they or won't they do like I'm tired of waiting to see what they'll do about it uh they finally did something would be the best description they did something this 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 (laughs) month uh by picking up Ben Bishop and what wowed me about that Ben Bishop contract is how readily Jim Nill is like waltzing down the same road that got him into this like where this spot where his hands have been tied for a few years now and it just didn't work my question for Jim Nill is like, do you think you just had the wrong guy before you put your bet on the wrong guy and that this is like a really important element of a championship team? Or are you just being stubborn about this? Like, do you still have something to prove? What's your take on this Bishop contract, this long term commitment for a, a pretty hefty cap hit? How do you feel about that? Um, my so I like Ben Bishop. I mean, um, I actually think his skills are going to be a higher level than what we've had in Dallas, which is great. <laughs> um, I've said for years that Dallas doesn't need a, amazing goaltending. We need average goaltending, yeah. and we're just not getting it. So I think we will at the very least get average or better goaltending. Um, my main issue is with the term of the contract. I think actually the money on the contract is quite good. Getting him for just under $5 million is actually a lot lower than I expected. 
But the term is a major concern for me, um, especially because he's had a lot of injury issues and he's already 30. And for someone that big who is not the best technical goaltender, he's not the best technical goaltender and he's not the best athletic goaltender either. He's no John Quick um, and he's no Carey Price. So he's kind of, you know, in that middle where he's counting on being mostly in the right position and then just being big enough. And if your groin goes, which it has been for him the last two years, um, he's missed significant time for that. Then at 6'6 and 30 years old, and I speak say this as an almost 33-year-old, your body doesn't come back as quickly. So I think we'll get probably decent goaltending out of him. Um, average to above average goaltending out of him for the next two years. If he can stay healthy, I am strongly concerned. I am extremely concerned about beyond the first two years of that contract. Now that said, there's no way Jim Nill is done, right? They're, the goaltending, we have three goaltenders on staff now for at this point, $15 million. <laughs> Something, something's got to give. If one of them isn't like a, a peak Henrik Lundqvist for $9 million. You can't you okay. can't just roll with that. There's every indication that Niemi is going to be bought out this summer. And also, while it looks like the front office would be comfortable rolling with Lettinen as the backup, because he does only have the one year left on his contract. So it's not like, yes, we would have a lot of money invested in goaltending again, but we wouldn't after this year. I also wouldn't be shocked if Lettinen was moved for something else or or there's some so other sort of deal was done. So there's a lot of options they have. Bishop, the contract, the term is bad. The money's good. And there's going to be a lockout in three years anyway. So who cares? <laughs> right. Hey, silver lining <laughs> of some sort. Maybe the contract can be re- renegotiated or something at that point. But I, I absolutely hear you if you can get a couple good years out of him it's just going to be nice for stars fans or really hockey fans to be able to watch the dallas stars get average or above average goaltending that they've been needing for so many years now uh now you were talking about the offseason earlier and how they have a few maneuvers to make and there is room with some roster turnover inevitable they also uh like you said off the top came out really well in the lottery they've got the third overall pick this year in a draft where everyone's saying, well, there's two, and then there's a drop. So what is your your wish list? What are you looking to, what boxes are you looking to tick off with that third overall pick? So I actually don't have a particularly firm, this is who I want for number three. The one that I actually do have a specific, like, this is what I want for 30, because the Dallas Stars also have Anaheim's first round pick due to the Patrick Eves trade. I want Jake Ottinger from Boston as a goalie of the future. And, you know, at 30th overall, that's actually a really good spot for him to go because everybody's expecting him to go late first round, high second round. Clearly, you know, like we just talked about, Dallas has very little in the way of a goalie pipeline. And I think he's be, I mean, he's played really well in his freshman year and NCAA um, as one of the youngest goaltenders out there. And he's likely to start be the starter for the USA at World Juniors this coming year. So I think I think he's a really quality prospect. Now, granted, they've been burned in the past, but who hasn't? But it's really hard to get 
quality goaltending prospects this year unless you take a flyer on it. And with two first overall picks, it's worth it. Um, For third overall, though, I think there's a lot of really good options. I wouldn't be surprised if they go with who everybody has projected, um, which is kind of Miro, uh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Heskinen, uh, from, he's Finnish, he's playing in Liga right now. If you're pronouncing names wrong, then you absolutely belong on this podcast. You fit right in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of my trademark to pronounce names <laughs> wrong. <laughs> but yeah, so he's a D-man. He's the highest projected D-man in the draft. We clearly like to keep defensive prospects around for a really long time. Um, and they actually, the AHL now are it, the Texas Stars are kind of been depleted over the last couple of years because everybody's moved up into the NHL ranks. So they really do need to actually restock that pipeline. They just signed a guy named John Nyberg, who is playing in Frulunda. Um, and he is projected not to be a particularly high defensive prospect, but, you know, solid, which is good. And he'll be coming over the AHL next year. So I think I think they could go with defense. Um, I think they could also go with one of the high-end centers. Um, obviously, we won't get Patrick or Hershier. But a couple guys out there, Cody Glass is expected to go pretty high, and he's a center. Also, a lot of fans are really, really high on um, Casey Middlestadt. And when the Stars were expected to go, you know, kind of that 8, 9, 10 range, that's who the kind of he was the projected pick. So a lot of fans are still pretty high on him, but third might be a little too high for him. And I also wouldn't be surprised to see the stars do a bunch of trading and not necessarily from the third pick They'll, I think they'll use the third pick um, because they've never had a pick that high in Dallas. But I also wouldn't be surprised to see that 30th pick get flipped for an extra defenseman or something like that. Let's switch gears over to the world right now. You're one of the people on my Twitter timeline who is, seems to be following them the most closely. So I wanted to get your take. Who's caught your eye the most in watching this tournament that's just about over. And maybe we can separate into two bins. We can look at guys who we already know as NHLers and a few guys who aren't yet in the league, but perhaps could be in the league based on this performance or just based on uh, eventually getting a contract. So let's start with that NHL group. Who have you noticed performing uh, in a way that makes you really optimistic about their season next year? Uh, Clayton Keller who played for the USA. He was the youngest guy at any, at the tournament this year, um, just turned 18 and, uh, he'll be on the coyotes next year. He was really good. Um, he started the tournament on, I think the third line and ended up by the end of it, um, on the top line. And I mean, he, I think he, he scored a hat trick in one game. I mean, he just, he did what he, he was able to play both sides of the puck. He was, for a little guy, because he is, you know, smaller, fearless on the puck. You know, he's a very, very exciting, great hands, tons of speed, really going to be a fantastic ad for the Coyotes next year. So I really just hope that they get a little bit more support around him to, you know, just really show him off. As far as other NHLers, just a lot of the young guys. So Canada had Mitch Marner, uh, Braden Point, and um, Travis Konechny playing on the same line. It was the best line Canada's had all tournament. Consistently very, very creative, strong defensively in the neutral zone, breaking up plays and then just turning it the other way, getting around defenses, all on the same page. I mean, just 
fun, fun hockey to watch. Um, and another guy who always seems to do really well when he's surrounded by high-end talent, Nathan McKinnon, doing Nathan McKinnon-type things. Like, he's just fast, he's strong, he's got a great shot, he's having a fantastic Worlds. And so it's one of those things where, like, you see Nathan McKinnon's season for the Avs, and then you see him go to the Worlds and just blow everybody away, just kind of like he did with um, the World Cup, right? On Team North America, he was fantastic. And then you get this Avs season that's just awful and then you get worlds again and so you have to kind of determine that it's it's more the avalanche than nathan mckinnon <laughs> yeah yeah he's been outstanding tied for second in points scored uh with nylander and kucherov uh, panarin of course is leading the tournament and then shibachov uh, so he's coming to the NHL, right, with Vegas. Yep. Uh, so he rounds out the top five. Uh, is there anyone else uh, that you've noticed not in the NHL who perhaps could make their way to the NHL sometime in the future uh, that's been putting up a good performance with their country? Uh, Nikita Gusev is just, he, in the KHL this past year, played with uh, Shipachov and Dadanov on uh, SKA St. Petersburg. It was the best top line in the entire and so a lot of people have kind of been actually well is it just quality of teammates whatever for both Shipachov and Dadanov and Gusev actually so everybody's kind of like well are these three only good because of the other two people on the line and I think they've really proven at Worlds that no they're just good (laughs) and so Nikita Gusev is still under contract with uh, St. Petersburg and expected to play in the KHL next year he was drafted by the Lightning but he never signed in the NHL and his rights were never traded So he qualifies as a defected player, which means that until Batman, the league commissioner, determines that his contractual obligations to the KHL are done, he can't, he's not a free agent. So the the Lightning have first crack at signing him for an indeterminate amount of time because there's no transfer agreement. So likely Gusev, who is only 24 right now, is going to be a Tampa Bay held asset, or his rights are a held asset, I should say, for probably until he's about 27, because the KH, he's more than likely going to try and keep re-signing in the KHL now because he likes it and he gets you know he gets paid well and he's on a winning team. They won their cup last year, but he's been playing with Kucherov on a line sometimes on the power play with Dadanov and Shipachov. I mean, he's just been fantastic. He's fast. He's great net front presence, fantastic hands. And just watching the Russians play hockey is a delight. Like, oh my gosh, they just have the most beautiful breakouts I've ever seen. I mean, only hockey nerds will really appreciate that. <laughs> what, but what makes? Can you try and describe what makes it so, so nice to watch? Like there is the whole thing about the Lions playing, you know, in units of three. Like you've got your three forwards. There's not as much line blending as in the mm-hmm. NHL. So, so sometimes that goes into explaining why. But why, when you watch, why do you enjoy watching the Russians play so much? Well, it's it's very free-flowing hockey. So the breakout, like, there was this one breakout I watched, and I can't remember who they were playing against, but, I mean, it was just gorgeous. It was actually a four-man breakout, like, Four different people touched the puck in the defensive zone before getting it into the neutral zone. And it was just this tic-tac passing and like the four checkers were completely discombobulated and they had no idea what was going on. And the Russians like they got into the offensive zone so quickly that they managed to get another chance before anybody could get set. And that was on a a breakout, not like a turnover or anything like that. I mean, it was a controlled 
everybody knew kind of what was going on, but they were all covering different areas of the ice. The the forwards lines even got into it. So it wasn't just the two defensemen trying to move the puck out of the defensive zone and maybe hit a stretch pass or something like that. It was all five players back in the defensive zone. And it was um, Miranov who brought the puck up. And I think it was Gusev and Kucherov who kept passing it back and forth between the two of them. And then I think Knetsov was a, might have been on the same line as well. And just between the four of them, I mean, they got out of the defensive zone and through the neutral zone without anybody else seeing the puck. And it was just gorgeous. Well, hopefully we can get uh, get some puck movement in Dallas going in that direction <laughs> next year. Might need a couple more Russians. In fact, with Nishushkin gone, is there, is there one on the roster? Um, Denis Gurionov played for the AHL club this past year. I expect him to probably be in the AHL again next year, but he might be on the list of like potential call-ups due to injury. Um, he didn't have the best AHL campaign, but he definitely grew. Like You could definitely see him progressing every single game. So... I think he'll be an NHLer, probably not next year, but maybe the year after. Awesome. So thanks for that uh, excellent rundown of what's going on at the world and the Dallas Stars. A lot to chew on there. A lot we'll be watching for to see to see what happens over the off season. Uh, really appreciate your time. That's going to close it off for us. Uh, but uh, it was a real pleasure having you on the show, and thanks for taking the time to join us. It was my pleasure too, and I'm I'm, I'm rooting for the Sens. I will say that I'm definitely rooting for the Sens. Yes, but Carlson first, right? Well, yeah, I have his jersey, so there we go. Always Carlson. <laughs> Swedish defense first, then the team. Yes, yes. <laughs> thanks for having me. That was my chat with Carolyn Wilkie. Again, you can find her on Twitter at Classlicity, and you can find her work regularly over at fanragsports.com and hockey-graphs.com. And with that, this episode has come to an end. Feel free to let us know what you thought by tweeting us at Keeping Carlson. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Again, if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show and supporting what we do, you can also head on over to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. If you're curious, by the way, about who is winning the Cup-Fold Champions playoff pool, you can go on over to keepingcarlson.com slash champ pool. And what you'll see there is that I am crushing it at the moment. And the bittersweetness of Pittsburgh defeating Ottawa means that I am essentially guaranteed victory. I'm also doing pretty well in our all-patrons pool. Right now I'm in fourth, got a bit of a shot, but shout out to Grand Moff Larkin, who is still leading the way, followed by Sydney Anna Jones in the Cup of the Covenant and Zombie Sends. That's exactly what they look like tonight. How prescient uh, in third place at the moment. Of course, we'll keep you all up to date as we know how much you want to know how that pool is going. I'd like to thank Travis and Carolyn once more for joining me today. And Elon and I will be back again with another brand new episode two weeks from today. Until then, keep on keeping Carl signed.